I'm Christopher Calloway, and this is Creator Talks, the show where I interview writers and artists working in comic books and in other mediums. I have two guests today. One is returning to the show, Adam Glass. He was on show number 43 back in June of 2017. He was working on the Aftershock comic book, The Normals, and he is here today with Olivia Briggs, and both of them are working with artist Hayden Sherman on Mary Shelley, Monster Hunter. It is being published through Aftershock Comics. The first issue is already out, and the second issue is coming out May 22nd. Adam is best known for his television work on Criminal Minds, Cold Case, and Supernatural. And his writing partner, Olivia Briggs, is a bit of an expert on Mary Shelley's history, and she brings a lot of factual information. So this is Creator Talks, and besides talking about the comic book, we're going to talk about the history of Frankenstein and Mary Shelley, both in books and in film to some degree. Now, Adam has already answered some of my kicking back with the creator questions, but he's going to answer some additional questions I've added since then, and Olivia's going to take her first crack at those questions on this episode. And in case you didn't know, this episode is brought to you by the Comic Book Shop at 1855 Marsh Road at the Plaza 3 Shopping Center in Wilmington, Delaware, where comics are for everyone. Just be nice. I just love talking about the classics and classic horror monsters. I am so glad I had a chance to finally catch up with Adam and Olivia and take a deeper dive into Mary Shelley, Monster Hunter. Here now on Creator Talks. Adam and Olivia, welcome to Creator Talks. Hey. Well, let's get started getting right into this, uh, beginning with the history of Mary Shelley. Tell me about that summer, 1816, that fateful meeting in Switzerland, when Mary, I think she was still Godwin, and Percy Bysshe Shelley and Lord Byron spent the summer together, and how that came to be the Frankenstein story that we know today. From what I know, and uh, the research that I've done for this book, they were traveling together, this group. Another person that you didn't mention that was with them was Claire Claremont, um, that was Mary Shelley's stepsister. And when she first ran away with Percy at the tender age of 16, she thought, you know, it would be better if it weren't just her and Percy running around Europe together, but if they had um, an escort, younger stepsister of hers. Claire was obsessed with Lord Byron, had a big old crush on him because he was a celebrity at the time. And somehow she very craftily um, managed to not just track him down, um, but to at least hold his attention for long enough that he traveled with them. Uh, In terms of how the book came about, as the story goes, they were all out in Geneva uh, one night and they were reading, you know, the classic scary stories of the time. And they all agreed that these stories were crap and they weren't actually scary and there were no good ghost stories. Why aren't there any good ghost stories? So Lord Byron issued a challenge. He said, well, let's fix this problem and let's all write our own ghost story and see whose is the scariest. And apparently that's what set Frankenstein in motion. And I'm glad you brought up Claire because she is part of the comic and she's in the first issue. And you've done a lot of research on Mary Shelley. And explain this scandalous relationship for the 19th century between her and Percy. Well, they had an open relationship. Percy Shelley was known at the time for being a big believer in open marriage and open relationships and free love, as they call it. They actually called it free love then. It wasn't popularized until the 1960s. So they were 
really, really ahead of their time. Mary was so enamored with Percy that I think um, in a lot of ways she went along with it. She also did have lovers on the side as well. But of course, at this point in time, people could not wrap their heads around open relationships. I mean, it was so incredibly scandalous. And this group, this traveling group of young people, which was scandalous to begin with anyway, and then people finding out that they were into this free love thing, some people completely revered them, but the majority of people, I mean, they were infamous in their time. And they were called the League of Incest and Atheism by the British press. That was the term that was used. And uh, it didn't help them a whole lot because they didn't have a lot of money, even though Percy's family was wealthy. His father cut him off from time to time. And, you know, so they'd be out there traveling and they'd had this really scandalous reputation. And so they used to get turned away a lot. And it was hard for them to find places to stay and have money. And Percy was constantly having to borrow from friends and Lord Byron. And that's what they were up to. They were the original punk music, you know, (laughs) they were like going out there and really sort of shaking up the world. And, you know, you don't think about those things in the early 1800s because our history books teach us that those things weren't happening. And for the most part, they weren't. But, the, you know, as Olivia has pointed out, you know, these guys were crazy wild and sort of out there in sort of their beliefs of the time. But put that through the lens of today and it's like, you know, sort of normal. Yeah, they were very progressive. And I didn't read about this stuff in the history books and you didn't hear discussion of it. And something else that's pointed out in the book that I wasn't aware of is that Shelley's mother was a pioneer of women's rights. Is that right? Absolutely. Mary's mother, yeah. Um, Her name is Mary Wollstonecraft. She was a fantastic writer, and she did not believe in marriage, although she did end up getting married uh, towards the end of her life. And she did not believe that women should be dependent on men, and she was very much for women's education because that was the one way that she felt like women could rise up and start taking care of themselves so that they wouldn't have to be dependent on men. It was difficult for her because she did end up falling in love at one point and she got pregnant and all of a sudden found that because of the time and because of the situation she was in, she so much wanted to be able to depend on this person in her life who ultimately abandoned her. And she suffered for her beliefs and her reputation suffered after her death uh, because she did take lovers and she led an independent life and Mary had to grow up in that shadow for some it was the shadow of greatness and for a lot of people it was the shadow of scandal and that's the world she was raised in for Mary I understand that if it weren't for her we probably wouldn't know as much about Percy's works like his Prometheus Unbound which in a way inspired her Frankenstein modern Prometheus tell me the connection between those two the drama Prometheus Unbound that Percy wrote. I don't know about Frankenstein being the direct result of something that Percy wrote. As far as I know, that's debated, but I do know that he had an immense fascination with electricity growing up. He used to try and harness it in various ways and use lightning storms and stuff and play pranks on people. And I know that that was very inspirational in the writing of Frankenstein. But as far as how his work directly uh, influenced or inspired the work of Frankenstein, I know there's been some debate around that. Some people even claim that he wrote it, which is, of course, you know, very sad for (laughs) those of us out there uh, who want to see women get recognition for their work. I think people found it very hard to believe that um, a 19-year-old girl could have written something so horrifying and intense and beautiful. I think the rumor started to swirl that this was actually somehow inspired by Percy Shelley, but um, I, I don't know 
what actual factual information we have to connect those to. And look at Percy's work. He never comes close to ever writing anything close to Frankenstein. So I, I'm with you, Olivia. I sort of feel like that's just the history buffs going back and sort of trying to find connections. You know, I think there's probably a closer connection to her life and what was happening then. People were dying constantly. Death was an everyday occurrence in early 1800s life. And as Olivia's pointed out in other interviews, she will go on, Mary Shelley, to lose most everybody in her life. So I think people are more consumed by death. And also people read the Bible more and people knew more about the Gollum and stuff like that through Jewish history, like things that were put in there and having Lazarus rise from the death. And I would say all those things had probably much more to do with Mary Shelley sort of dreamscaping this idea than anything that Percy had done. If anything, I'd say this, if not for Mary Shelley, nobody would know who Percy Shelley is. She kept his poetry alive and his writings alive way after his death. She is the only Even at her own peril. She was punished for that. She compiled all of his works. I mean, off like, like literally off bar napkins. Uh, oh, wow. Because he was so eccentric, he would just write on everything. And she collected everything that she could find that he ever wrote and put his works back together. And his father, who was actually financially supporting Mary at the time, because she was raising uh, their one surviving child on her own, told her, don't do it. I'll cut you off and you'll lose everything. And she did it anyway. Yeah, by the way, if anybody's listening to this podcast, they're probably like, I didn't realize this was a history lesson. I thought we're talking <laughs> comics, man. <laughs> <laughs> it feeds the comics. Both Olivia and I so wanted this to ring true. But we don't tell anybody we would have done it for nothing because we both love history so much. And love taking these deep dives. I've done it before in Rough Riders and being able to do it again with Olivia this time and peel back like one of these heroes of ours who most people only know the surface stuff too and sort of just realize what an unbelievable, amazing, progressive character she was in a time where women didn't really have a voice, own property, have rights. This woman was beating the drum very loudly. You know, she'd be more recognized for what she's done, besides giving us maybe one of the greatest horror sci-fi stories ever of all time. Absolutely. And from the works that I've read about Shelley's background is that she had basically like a waking nightmare of this creature coming up to her bed that's been reborn or up to someone, up to like mm-hmm. uh, the creator. And this might be tied to the traumatic experience she went through of losing a child, somehow being able to bring them back so that it was her own horrors in her own life that gave birth to this story. I think again. she wrote it before she lost her first oh, okay. child. I would have to go back and double check that, but I'm pretty sure that, yeah, it was written before her daughter died. But to that end, you know, she was born, her mother died giving birth to her. So again, this is surrounded by death her whole life. And I think that, you know, through time, these stories take on a story of their own, right? <laughs> so I'm sure there was a million different interpretations of how she came up with it. All we mm-hmm. know is that she did, and it changed literature and really changed our nightmares forever. People not familiar with the actual text, and I've read it, that the monster, there's not a great deal of detail about the creation of the monster. Like if you see the movies, you know, the old movies, universal horror films, it's this big lab scene and everything. And the first time I read the book, I was like, where's the big lab scene? Cause that's not how it takes place. It's yeah. more open to interpretation. And how do you plan to interpret the monster? Or should I just wait and be surprised? You mean, how do we adjust how he comes into being, how he is built? Some adaptations don't really spend a whole lot of time on the appearance of the monster. It's really how the monster is perceived. The creation is perceived how it's met by people. Um, I've seen like different versions of it, like Dan Curtis versus the uh, 
you know, Fred Pierce makeup and how they do it. How important is the appearance or is it really just how that creation is treated? For us, it's really all important. I mean, um, I don't want to give away why they have decided to create this creature because it's really fun and it's in book two and it's our unique spin on this. But his appearance is very important. We have our own interpretation there. And in a lot of ways, we've steered away from the uh, modern interpretation of this kind of like groaning, uh, hulking monster who seems fairly dim-witted and kills by accident. That's not our creature because he becomes a very influential and dynamic character throughout the series of books. And we wanted to really be able to get into his psyche. You can't do that with a big dumb lug who can't speak. So our monster is quite sophisticated, thematically very much in keeping with the original story. He very much wants love and acceptance. And when he doesn't get that, you know, you have to remember that he's still a child and he gets vengeful. And that's what we're really returning to. Okay, so this is a sympathetic character. Even in the original movie version of Frankenstein, I had some sympathy for the monster. Even in the book, I had some sympathy because this creation in the original version was abandoned by the creator. Just like, get away from me. Yeah, I don't want to even look at you or see you. So you do have some sympathy for this creature brought to life that didn't ask to be brought to life, and here it is again, back in the world, alone. I mean, imagine if our parents suddenly said, get the hell out of here, I don't ever want to see you again, or tried to kill us. <laughs> like, that's extremely painful. So yes, we wanted to get back to the humanity of this kind of inhuman character. I had no idea we were going to talk about my childhood like this, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> The whole Frankenstein story addresses a lot of ethical issues, and I don't mean from a theological standpoint for each of you, but just from an ethical standpoint. Have we advanced so far with what we can do, creating life, modifying life? Have we gone and advanced so far that we're not able to keep up with the ethics of it? How do we handle this newfound knowledge? Are we getting too far ahead of ourselves? depends on what your philosophy is. I feel people are always sitting there and saying, well, we can't do this, we can't do that, and what are the rules and all that stuff, and what are the ethics? Livia and I haven't had this conversation. She might totally disagree with me on this, but I just always firmly believe that if we can do it, then it was meant to be. You know what I'm saying? It's like, now, with that said, I understand the shades of that, which is we made the atomic bomb. Were we meant to drop it? People could argue that left and right. And unfortunately, I think this always happens with science. Like, I think science always comes from a good place and let's do things. And that's how do people use it and abuse it? And that's a different question, the ethics of it. I think we are moving in a place. I don't know if it's in my lifetime, but definitely in my children's lifetime. It's like we can make organs, we can make hearts, we can make things and make people live longer lives and healthier lives. Can we extend life? You know, yeah. Should we bring people back from the dead? I don't know. You know, I mean, if it was it was my children, I'd say yes, because I love them and I want it to be. I don't want to lose them. But, you know, in the bigger picture of things, I think that's a personal choice for everybody, you know, and what they want to do. For me, I think it comes down to a question of responsibility. You know, I mean, scientific advancements are amazing. Human beings are built to strive for the next thing. It's what we've always done. We are all on a quest for knowledge. It is what excites us. It's hardwired into us to want more and to want to get there. So I think then it just becomes a question of, are we ready to take the responsibility for the things that we create? I think that that's our main problem, really, is we can create them and we have the power to give life. And now, how are we going to be responsible for that? And I think that that's a question that has been plaguing people for years in terms of AI and, and artificial intelligence. And really, 
Frankenstein is it's the first story about taking responsibility for artificial intelligence. You made this thing. You can't then turn your back on it just because you don't think that it should feel or you don't think that it should operate the way it's operating. And I think it's a metaphor for children, too. We create these things and then we are then responsible for them. We have to be willing to take on that responsibility. I agree. It's hard to put the genie back in the bottle and say, no, don't do that. Don't ever touch that because, you know, that's not going to happen. We have the brains. We have the knowledge. We have to use it responsibly. It's there. Now you got to deal with it. I want to get back to the comic. So Shelley is a very strong character in the book. I like the take on this because it opens the first issue with a class looking at the original Frankenstein film, one of the scenes, one of the famous scenes, and then we go back to the past when the person teaching this class finds Shelley's diary that no one knew existed. And that leads us to how the story of Frankenstein came about, but it's not based on pure fantasy. There's something that happened during that summer. And I think that's a really cool take. There's an untold story that we're going to learn. Thank you. I'm glad that you enjoyed that. We had fun creating it. I really have to read this book. It sounds pretty awesome. (laughs) (laughs) The first issue, great. I love Hayden Sherman's art on that book. It just works so well. Because I've read his other stuff. John Carter, The End, Cold War. And this book is more of a historical take. And still, his art continues to impress me because it works just so well. The color and the line art is amazing. And did you decide this is the guy we want for the book? was I think he heard that we were doing this through the folks at Aftershock and he was really stoked to be involved. So it was his impetus, like I want to do this. And that was really exciting for Adam and I because you always want to work with people that are really excited about the material. Then we saw his work and there was a real delicacy to it and we really felt that he would be able to not just embrace the historical look of the book that we were going for, but also that creep factor in that line work that you're talking about. So, you know, we had some other options on the table. And then at the end of the day, we were just like, this kid wants it. And these illustrations are amazing. So this is where we're going to go. I read a review about the book. I won't say who it was. They said it followed in the footsteps of Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Now, I didn't see that movie. I thought the trailer was, oh, that's pretty cool. But I didn't get that impression that that's the kind of book it is. How do you interpret that? I think that's lazy reviewing is what I think. (laughs) Um, I think that the Monster Hunter sort of part of the title, you know, is a bit of a throw off. And we discussed it. I think the difference is like, you know, we're not like you said, you pointed out so nicely before and precise is that we turned around and we took a character that existed, who was real, who had this experience and has been, you know, documented, you know, and it really started that simply when Olivia and I spoke about it. What if the reason a 19 year old young lady living in these times could write the story is because she lived it? You know, that is the element we're adding to it. Everything else is pretty historically correct. You know, Abe Lincoln making up a whole mythos of something this guy never did and nothing even close to it in a world that doesn't even really fit into his world. Mary Shelley, this is really woven into her story, you know, so all we're doing is adding an extra element to it that at least has a connection from the jump in the beginning. So for me, that's I think the big difference uh, between the two and I've seen a couple of reviews where they've started off by saying that I think it's literally if we called it Mary Shelley Frankenstein tamer um, it would have been a total <laughs> you know different thing so that's every time I see it I'm just like come on guys read the book first before you go there and do that yeah I would not base any impression of the book on the title that's just too simple it's a much much deeper book than that and you know I 
would have loved to have seen something like your story, your script, your idea used for the reboot of the Universal Horror films. Dark Universe never got there, unfortunately. Just kind of crapped out after The Mummy, but which is unfortunate because I saw it and I, did, I didn't dislike it. I thought it was all right. It was pretty good. I'm with you, man. I liked it. I didn't think it was that bad. You know, I love Tom Cruise, so, you know, I'm, I'm in. I'm in the cruise machines there. But I, I, listen, if you're listening, Universal, this man has much knowledge and he speaks the truth, so... Yes, a very, very good point. Come on, bring it. What do you think about Frankenstein, the creature, the doctor? The story set in the 19th century works very well. Set in the early 20th century, as it did in the movies, works very well. Would that work today? Because today now we've lived through the atomic age and the fear of the Cold War and nuclear annihilation. Would something like Frankenstein monster creation still be as scary today? I think it can be. I think it can be done. But what do you think about that being set in modern times? I think Adam and I both agree, and we know we agree, that it's extremely relevant, even more so now because we are getting to the point, you know, you were discussing earlier with technology where this is kind of conceivable reality that you can bring back the dead. This could happen, but now, rather than it being some roughly cobbled together monster that you could look at in a second and know like, oh my God, that scary thing is undead. In this day and age, you might not even know. I mean, they could be existing among us right now and you would never know. So I think for us, we feel like a story like this against the modern backdrop is very, very relevant. And as you mentioned, there is a a modern day component of our book. And that is something that will be explored as the books move forward. So it's going to be a five-part series, but there's the potential for more. It all depends on the folks at Aftershock, right, Adam? Absolutely. Okay, so we'll leave that door open. So the next issue is coming out May 22nd, issue number two. At this point, I get into the kicking back with your creator questions, if you want to participate in that. Sure, let's do it. Yeah. Adam, you've done some of these already. And the first question was, what do you like to do for rest and relaxation? When we last spoke, it was spending time with family, reading one or two books a year. How are you doing with that? Are you managing to get one or two done a year? I know that's hard with family and everything and work. <laughs> well, no, because the, my TV life um, takes uh, so much of my time. Okay. So, And my kids are getting older. So my daughter is about to go to Berkeley School of Music in Boston for college. So she's leaving soon. So trying to get as much time in uh, between work and that, you know, not reading as much, but I will say this because I'm old. I finally figured out how to work the, um, what's the thing that records things? Uh, not the V it, it, when I was growing up it was a VCR, but the, uh, the DVR, you know, DVR. <laughs> so I finally figured out how to use that in my Adam house. Adam is 100 years old. That's 150 years thing. old. And uh, I look, but I look fabulous. <laughs> And and so I've been catching up on TV shows and I watched Killing Eve, which I liked very much the first season of. So, yeah, I've been like when I'm like right now, I'm writing up and I got home from work and I came up. I have a little guest house that I write in. So I'll usually write here till about eight o'clock and then I'll go make dinner and then I'll take a shower. I'm giving you you wanted it, man. TMI, buddy. <laughs> everybody here's the Adam last evening. Okay. I check in with the kids. I talk with them. And I'm like around 10. I got about an hour in me, hour and a half. And I'll try to knock out a couple of shows. Okay. Nice. <laughs> How about you, Olivia? For rest and relaxation, what do you like to do? It's tough in this business to make yourself do it. But I found it's very important. I also have a baby on the way. 
So oh, if I don't get it in now, I thank you. <laughs> but if I don't get it in now, I'm not going to get it at all. My life is kind of similar. Um, I also have a five-year-old daughter. So whatever free time I have goes to her. And then when she goes to bed, I burn some essential oil and I try and catch up on shows because in this business, man, you'd be amazed how many people, there's like so many shows out there and every meeting you go to, people are asking about different stuff and it's always good to have something to say and to know what's out there and see what all these other, you know, brilliant minds of our comrades are up to. So yeah, that's it. So the only thing I'm missing is lighting the essential oil. Is I found it really helps. <laughs> it okay. really does. Okay. I've gotten very into mm-hmm. it. Okay. Uh, Mia, Mia and I should chat. <laughs> you don't have to tell me. <laughs> it's very relaxing. I uh, burn incense for meditation. It's very relaxing. It's great. And there's like all different, if you get a book and you look up, you know, what scents are good for what types of moods and there's some for creativity and relaxation and, um, I recently had my beloved pup pass away. I had to put him down, and there's essential oils for helping you let go of things. Oh, wow. Um, and, yeah, so I, I found the whole thing really, really wonderful, and it helps with that spiritual connection, too, because in this business, you know, it can move very, very quickly, and it's really easy to get disconnected from yourself, but your work suffers when you do that. So you have to learn how to move as fast as this business moves and still be grounded. So whatever you can do, it really helps. Good advice for anyone. <laughs> now, <laughs> I haven't asked Adam this question before. So Adam, I'll start with you. And Olivia, this will give you some more time to think about it. Thinking back to a favorite birthday, which one was it and why was it your favorite? Oh, interesting. I'd say this more is it's not so much a favorite birthday as a birthday I really remember incredibly well. It's embedded in my soul. I turned 30 and I was living in Los Angeles. For a better term of the word, I was having a really good time at this point in my life. <laughs> make some money and was uh, had many friends of all different types. I had this birthday party that a few friends threw for me. And I remember sitting in it was this huge house, giant backyard. I remember sitting up with a couple of friends, partaking in some things and uh, looking out the window. <laughs> And uh, they see through me. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I remember looking out the window and I must have been 400 people at this party. I'm no exaggeration. It was out of control. And I just remember feeling extremely lonely and realizing at that point in my life that I wanted more than what these things I thought what I wanted, which was, you know, to be a big writer and make a lot of money and beautiful women and all that stuff. And I realized that moment, no, what I really wanted to meet someone I could connect with and have a family and all that. And I met my wife within six months of that. Actually, this past Saturday. Quantum manifestation. Mm -hmm. Yes. I don't know what that means, but exactly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I I turned around and my wife and I this past Saturday celebrated 20 years together. Oh, congrats. Yeah, we had our 20th anniversary. So that is what I remember. More grown up than a young sort of full thing that I'm sure Olivia is going to have some amazing things. You actually know mine, Adam. Um, I don't know how well you remember it, but it was my, <laughs> oh my God. How old was I when I came back out here? I can't even remember. So I think it was 32 when I came back out to L.A. 
So I had met Adam the year before, and then he ended up uh, co-show running uh, Criminal Minds Beyond Borders. And I was living in New York at the time with a one-year-old and just wanted more than anything to work in television. I mean, it was all I wanted. And I used to listen to Nerdist Writers Panel every day, and I would just fantasize about it. And he called me one day, and he was like, do you want to be the writer's assistant on Criminal Minds Beyond Borders? And I was like, hang on. Yes, done. And four days later, I was on a plane. I was back to L.A. And... The writer's room started towards the end of May. My birthday is at the end of May. And I think it was like the second day of work or something. And you have to understand, I just, I revered television writers at this point in my life. I, I mean, I still do, but I've been one now, so it's a little bit different. But I remember like seeing all the writers like walking towards me at one point. It was like they were walking in slow motion. Like, it was so cool to me. And so I'm in the writer's room and I'm so nervous. My first job in TV, I do not want to screw up anything. And <laughs> come in it's it happens to my birthday and I, I must have told somebody somebody must have realized I don't know and they came in with like all of these goodies and lit candles and sang happy birthday and I was like beat red because I was completely on the spot and I was like but I was so honored and these people were so lovely and then I was trying to arrange things on the table so that we could fit all of these like goodies that people had brought in and like pieces of cake and cupcakes and everything. And I, all of a sudden I found myself standing at the head of the table and everyone was staring at me and I didn't know what to do. And so I just started giving this speech. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed even thinking of it now, but I was like telling them like how grateful I was to be there and like how this is like all I ever wanted and this is a dream come true and this is the best birthday ever. And looking back, oh my God, it still embarrasses me looking back. I mean, I must have been so red, I was purple. And then finally I sat down and I don't think anyone expected me to give a speech. And uh, so, yeah, but it was really, it really was a fantastic birthday. And I embarrassed the hell out of myself, but it was uh, very heartfelt. And I am still totally honored to be part of this business. So that was my best birthday. All right. Well, here's something that's going to go back a little further for both of you. Thinking back to when you were in middle school you know, that 12 to 14 years of age, what posters and or pictures did you have on your bedroom wall? <laughs> I remember exactly what I had on my bedroom wall. And I remember my bubby would walk in and I mean, I always think now back, oh my God, what did she think? I was so into like run DMC. And then on the other, over my bed was a picture of marvelous Marvin Hagler, who was the middleweight champion with all three of his title belts. Then I had Daryl Dawkins, Chocolate Thunder. There was nothing but black men up on my wall. <laughs> I was just like Jewish kid. And I had nothing but like these great African-American heroes up on the wall. And I, just, I remember my bubby just looking around and being like, okay, this is interesting. you know. But so much part of my time and what I was sort of experiencing growing up in the city in the Bronx. So yeah, it was all my heroes on the wall. you know. And I think I had one like black light poster in my closet that you opened up and I thought was cool as hell, but... I now look back on it, and realize, but it's not that cool. But yeah, it was very cool. You're, you're talking, by the way, he's like, what are you talking about? Cut to his room full of black light posters as he's talking to us. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean not cool? <laughs> yes, that was what is on my wall. But, you know, I'm very interested. Olivia, 
those are like more boy things. Did you have posters on your wall? I mean, I had artwork on my wall, but oh, this is going to make me sound like so hoity-toity. But um, I went to a very artsy private school in New York City. My father taught there, so I was a faculty brat, not a rich kid. I should make that disclaimer. But um, <laughs> I had my sketches from figure drawing class on my wall. <laughs> there was yeah. one in particular that I remember because I was never very good at figure drawing, but all my friends were. And there was this one sketch that I did that I was so proud of. Um, and so I have that, I think it's still framed on my wall in my childhood bedroom in New York City right now, as a matter of fact. And then the other thing that I had as a teenager, my father was a set and lighting designer. And so at some point, I, I don't know, maybe when I was like 10 or 11, he got me um, a mirror ball <laughs> and these two um, lights with these turning color wheels. And I thought that was so cool. And I would have my friends over and well, we would drink 40s when we shouldn't have been. And then we'd like lay on the floor and like watch the, watch the dots spin. And we thought that was amazing. I'm so amazed that we didn't throw up every time. But yeah, <laughs> that was the 90s. I did nothing with the black light poster. There was no marijuana involved. <laughs> anything. Never. The Bronx? Are you kidding? No. Now, my next question is the Desert Island book question. Now, this is a book you'd want to read for pleasure if you're stuck on a desert island. It's not about survival. Adam, last time you were with me, you mentioned Anne Rand's Fountainhead as your book, your island book. Yeah. Olivia, what's yours? I don't, gosh, I've never thought about this. What one book? I mean, it would have to be very, very long. <laughs> I'll say that one of my favorite books of all time is Lolita, and I have this copy um, from uh, high school. Because we had, well, again, private school, but we had this amazing Russian uh, literature class. And I read the book there. So I have this copy from high school with all of these notes in it. Yeah, so I don't know. Maybe Lolita. I, that was always my favorite. Again, you sort of go to a, a memory. When I first moved to L.A., I was so broke. And I was in my mid-20s. And I literally would eat a bowl of rice a day. Like, I had no money. But what I did have is I had all the Anne Rice interview with the vampire. And, you know, and I just remember reading those books and those books being so, you know, much a part of me getting through those days. I would cheat and say, I'll take the whole set. Yeah, now you're making me want to cheat. Queen of Dance. You're making me want to cheat, for sure. Maybe maybe Shakespeare's complete work. Can I do that? Yeah, you can have a collection, sure. (laughs) That that would keep me occupied. (laughs) Now, here's another completely hypothetical situation. Your publisher says, we're going to make an action figure of you. What would be your action figure's accessory? The mighty pen. (laughs) 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 Like, this is the moment where everybody at home is like shutting it off. What a douchebag. (laughs) The writer. (laughs) But it would say the mighty pen on it. Exactly. Oh, there you pen, go. Uh, pen on it. I've never used a sword in my life, but they just seem so cool. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go with the classical, give me a, a kick-ass, maybe because I'm watching way too much Game of Thrones like the rest of America in yes. the world. Give me Excalibur. How about that? Okay. I'll even take right. it further. I want Excalibur. <laughs> What's your assessment? I don't know. I feel like to truly represent, I feel like, what I deal with on a daily basis, I would need like... A laptop in one hand and a baby in the other. Because that's like, <laughs> that's, that's where I am right now. Or I don't know, like a massive diaper bag that's just like exploding with journals and my laptop think, hanging out. You think you know someone. I would have said nunchucks, but okay. 
Baby in a laptop. <laughs> Are you kidding? I would kill myself with nunchucks. <laughs> <laughs> and the next question, I, Adam, I have asked you this question about your beverage of choice. And you had a lot of good choices. Tequila, Johnny Walker Scotch. Yeah. You know, I mean, all mm-hmm. good choices. Olivia, how about you? When you're relaxing, what do you like to have to drink? Pre-pregnancy, what I like. Mm-hmm. And then there's pregnancy, what I like. Pre-pregnancy, it was all about Sauvignon Blanc. Right now, literally, all I want is sparkling White wine. <laughs> and I want it. <laughs> Vodka. Um, <laughs> my cravings for sparkling lemonade are out of this world, but it has to be the kind I make myself. So it's like I give myself homework to address my cravings. But yeah, that's it right now. I could go through like bottles of it in one sitting. I'm just picturing your husband Scott right now at the <laughs> store looking. They're out. What do you mean you're out of sparkling lemonade? You can't be. <laughs> the first pregnancy, I really drove him crazy with that because I was all about grapefruit juice. And I used to make him go out in the middle of the night. And we only lived near this like crappy gas station on the corner. He used to go to the gas station every night and pick me up uh, grapefruit juice and seltzer water. Yeah, now we have a soda stream, so we're we're good now. Moving up in the world. Wow, soda stream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now thinking back to when you were a child, th- this is not a therapy session. I'm just <laughs> now think back when you were a child. You know, Thank there... God, because I was about to cancel my therapy appointment for later in the week. <laughs> <laughs> But was there a horror film that scared you as a child that made it difficult to sleep at night? Like, for example, when I was like a teenager, I saw The Exorcist and I could not sleep yeah. at night. Okay, that one, that was it for me. How about you? Yeah, I was saying Exorcist scared the shit out of me, man. I really remember. It's so that. weird that you guys are saying this because that's mine too. That's mine yeah. too, like 100%. Yeah. That's so weird. Yeah, it messes people up. That, and I will say this too, I was the perfect age for Friday the 13th. Mm. And when I was 14, my mom moved us to upstate New York, and you had to walk through the woods to get anywhere. And I remember that <laughs> everywhere was literally, I would just walk, and in my head, all I heard was, and I would run literally everywhere. I would run. There was one other one for me. The Exorcist was really pivotal, though, because I was a horror movie fanatic when I was a kid. And that was the only one my parents would let me see. And then finally, when I was 12 years old, they let me see it. Um, I know it doesn't sound that old. I really had to, like, work for years to get to see that. Maybe I was a little bit older. But anyway, but so before then, I had read the entire book because they wouldn't let me see the movie. So I was really deeply entrenched in that one. And it was very disturbing. And then I got to see the director's recut. But the other movie that really gave me nightmares and not many did was Event Horizon. I don't know if you guys remember that movie, but it scared the piss out of me. Sam Neill, do you remember that? Okay, nobody does. It's about a haunted haunted spaceship. Um, And it really, really got me. And I had nightmares. And I couldn't believe I had nightmares. But it was very traumatizing. I will say this with age, too. I saw something that I wish I could have unsaw. And I had to shut it off. And I literally could see anything. I'm the guy, like, you know, there's roadkill. I can get out and pick it up. And, you know, like, I just have no issues with anything. But uh, I was at a friend's house at a party, actually. I walked in a room. I looked up. I said, what the F is this, man? And they were like, oh, it's the human centerpiece. And I was like, oh, Oh, God. Yeah. I wish I I never saw this in my life because it took me literally a month to get the image out of my head. So 
I don't know. I don't know why you just brought it up. Actually, like I have finally gotten over it, and now it's all I can see. <laughs> There's one for me. German. Damn Germans! Only the Germans could think of a story like that. <laughs> for all the German fans out there, Adam Glass forty four is my Twitter account. <laughs> Come at me, bro. Come at me. Bring it. <laughs> Final question: If you could speak with Mary Shelley and could ask her one question, what would it be? Ooh, the floor is to the lady. <laughs> oh, geez, that's not cool. Gosh, what? you only get one question. Just one. <laughs> that's it. Oh, gosh. I say Percy Shelley, so really? Much, so much. I, could, I know, right? <laughs> no. He had some other lovers do this, honestly. I don't know. I guess at this point, I've devoted so much to deconstructing her character, and I'm still doing it, and exploring who she is and trying to do justice to this woman's life in this make-believe world that we're bringing her into, but to try and combine the two. I don't know. I guess I would just ask her how I'm doing. She was a writer, too. She was a fantastic writer and a woman who lived in a very different time. And to be able to get her reflections on the work that I'm doing and how I'm doing her justice and how I'm living my life and what she thinks of my work, I'd love to know that. But you, Adam? You were talking about this earlier, like, you know, in a world where, you know, she realizes where it really did come from. Like, you know, what did inspire you to write Frankenstein? And where did this story that we're still talking about till this day, you know, and still relevant to this day, 200 years later, where did this come from? And again, what made you write it? Underneath that, really sort of see that would be amazing. It is such an amazing work that it has endured for so many years, centuries now. And it still resonates with an audience. There's so many lessons to take away from there, but it still speaks to a lot of issues. And I was really excited to see and I'm excited to read Mary Shelley, Monster Hunter, through Aftershock. The first issue came out April 17th. The next one's come out number two, May 22nd. So if you missed it, run to your comic shop, don't walk, and get the first issue and the second issue when it comes out. And I want to thank you both, Adam and Olivia, for being on Creator Talks this week. Thank Always you, a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Oh, Adam, you had mentioned, I think it was on social media, that there was a recently found an early version of Frankenstein. I don't remember, but they literally just found, and I'm pretty sure I sent it to you too, Olivia, they had found a silent movie that they had made, and uh, it was quite interesting. And just go into your Google search and literally look up Frankenstein silent movie, and I bet you it'll come up. Cool. There was one that Edison made, I believe, and it was like Easy Bake Frankenstein. They created him in an oven and they reversed the film footage of rather than something being consumed in flames, it was born out of flames. I know they found that, but not recently. Oh, wow. That's been around for a while. Put Frankenstein Silent 1910. Okay. And it'll come up. It's on YouTube. I'm watching it right now as we speak. No, I think this is the Edison one. It's got like the crazy haired Frankenstein with the crazy eyes. and Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. it. Yep, yep. They reversed the film to make it look like he's coming together. Oh, I see what you're saying. They ran it backwards. It's amazing. Thank you both. I'll let you enjoy the rest of your evening. Mine's just coming to a close. I really appreciate your time. I'm glad we got together. Loving the book. Keep up the wonderful work. Oh, we appreciate Thank you. So you. Much. Thank you so much. Thank you. I just wanted to share that little bit of post-interview tidbit with you when we were discussing the Edison version of Frankenstein. So check that out on YouTube. And I am really looking forward to issue number two of Mary Shelley, Monster Hunter, coming out through Aftershock Comics, May 22nd. And if you want to hear more from Adam, you can go back to my interview from June 2017 when we talk about The Normals. That's episode number 43. And you can listen to another podcast, The Longbox Review, 
episode number 52, where Eric of the Long Box Review and George of the defunct George and Tony Entertainment Show, which will be returning under a new name, hosted by George and a new team, so check out Long Box Review for details on that. But you can go back to Long Box Review episode number 52 to hear an interview with the entire creative team that worked on Rough Riders through Aftershock Comics, and that includes Adam Glass. It's a great conversation, lots of camaraderie there, so please check that one out. Last week, I forgot to tell you who was coming up in the next episode, and I apologize for that because I had it all set to go. Well, coming up next week on Creator Talks will be artist Dean Kotz. He's originally from Northeastern PA, close to my area, and he now lives in Brooklyn, and he is the artist on the upcoming Warlord of Mars Attacks through Dynamite Entertainment. So we're going to talk about Dean's artistic training, working in comics, and the plethora of projects he has coming up. Please join us then. And now for the usual business, the show is available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Amazon Alexa-enabled devices, and on Spotify now. You can follow me on social media, at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. And look for my Saturday Silver Age and Sunday Bronze Age comics from my collection that I post every weekend on social media. And follow my continuing saga of my move from Wilmington, Delaware to the West, Las Vegas, Nevada, coming up in June. So I'll be putting a fresh coat of paint on the show, perhaps some new theme music, and bringing you new episodes every other week on Thursday instead of every week because there's a lot going on, new town, new career, a lot to do, and I want to keep the quality of the episodes high. And if you like what you've heard so far, please rate and review the show on iTunes and other podcasts you enjoy as well. We really do appreciate it, and it really helps our shows stand out. Well, I have lots of podcast interview goodness coming up in the weeks ahead, so stay tuned. Subscribe and don't miss a single one. And be good to one another. Enjoy your comic books. Look for some really cool back issues. And share those with me on social media. For Creator Talks, this has been Christopher Calloway. Until next time. Mm